1942, freshly humiliated from the attack on Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt demanded a show of strength against the Japanese. Jimmy Doolittle, a stunt pilot with a doctorate from MIT, came forward and led 80 young men on a seemingly impossible mission across the Pacific. Dubbed the Doolittle Raiders, they struck the mainland of Japan and permanently turned the tide of the war in the Pacific. But their legendary mission wasn't the end of the story. In his debut history, Last Mission to Tokyo, the extraordinary story of the Doolittle Raiders and their final fight for justice, legal scholar and historian Michel Parody uncovers one of the last untold stories of a seminal moment in World War II, the pair of trials in Shanghai that determined the future of legal and military history. With incredible and gripping detail, he recounts the dramatic aftermath of the Doolittle mission, which involved two lost crews captured, tried, and tortured at the hands of the Japanese, the dramatic rescue of the survivors in the last weeks of the conflict, and the international manhunt and trial led by two dynamic and opposing young lawyers, Major Robert Dwyer, a prosecutor determined to bring justice to the Raiders, and Lieutenant Colonel Edmund Bodine, assigned to defend the Japanese, who were forced to confront the questions of what constitutes a fair trial, when we should show mercy to our enemies and right and wrong in the fog of war. The result is a heart-stopping, perspective-shifting courtroom drama that opens our eyes to a final act in the story of the greatest generation. Like compelling World War II histories such as Lucky 666 and Nuremberg, Infamy on Trial, Last Mission to Tokyo is a thrilling war story meets courtroom drama that also offers a deep dive into the Japanese perspective that fans of Clint Eastwood's Letters from Iwo Jima will find fascinating. Welcome everyone to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We're very proud to have with us today Michel Paradis, the author of Last Mission to Tokyo, and it's one of those books you absolutely can't put down. There was a whole lot more to Doolittle's Raid than most people are aware of, and he has really unlocked a huge drama here, and it's, uh, I think it's going to capture your attention all the way through and encourage you to get the book Last Mission to Tokyo. Michel Paradis is a leading scholar and lawyer of international law and human rights. He has won high-profile cases in courts around the globe and worked for more than a decade with the U.S. Department of Defense Military Commission's Defense Organization, which led many of the landmark court cases to arise out of Guantanamo Bay. He also holds the position of lecturer at Columbia Law School, where he teaches on the military, the Constitution, and the law of war. He has appeared on or written for NPR, MSNBC, The New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Foreign Policy, Lawfare, America, The Intercept, and The Late Weekly Standard. He lives with his wife, daughters, and Yorkie in Manhattan. Michel Parody, how are you doing today? After that introduction, I'm doing great. Thank you. <laughs> it's, great, it's great to have you with us. My pleasure. My pleasure entirely. Please give our fans a little bit of your background and tell our listeners just how you came across this story. Sure. So um, I've been a lawyer for uh, approaching 20 years, which is astounding to think about. Um, and much of my legal practice over that time has been uh, war crimes trials. Um, and, and so I've done war crimes cases in Africa, uh, to some extent in Europe, South, even Central America. And one of the projects I've, I've spent a lot of time on um, was the Guantanamo Bay cases, uh, which are war crimes prosecutions that have been conducted since the Bush administration. And so I was working uh, in 2007 in the Bush administration, and there had been an ongoing debate over whether or not waterboarding uh, constituted torture. And we had heard a rumor that there was a case in which we had, what we had heard was that, that we had prosecuted the Japanese for waterboarding. And so that was obviously of a lot of interest to determine what international law had to say on these things. And so we sent a young Marine captain to the National Archives to fetch this old record of trial, which I don't know that had been seen um, in, in 70 years at that point. And I remember one rainy day actually cracking it open and looking, and it was the trial of the Japanese who were being held responsible for murdering and torturing the Doolittle Raiders. Um, and it just totally stunned me. Um, and I realized not only was it not just a case about waterboarding. It was a case about so many other fascinating issues, uh, how we treat our enemies in wartime, uh, what is justice under international law, um, you know, the American virtues of truth, justice, and the American way, shaping how, what the post-war peace, right, this is 1945, 
46, what the post-war peace would look like from then on out. And so it just stunned me. It was such an amazing uh, an amazing story, even on the dry transcript that I was reading, um, that it stuck with me. And uh, eventually, uh, I got around into making it a book. Well, you've done quite a job. The, the book reads extremely well, and it really does, no matter which perspective you come from, it does raise a lot of questions. And I'll have a few of those questions for you as we go Good. through. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> Uh, for our listeners' sake, what is the story behind the Doolittle Raid? Sure. So, um, you know, it's one of the most famous uh, episodes from World War II, probably one of the most heroic and almost insane at first appearance missions uh, that the Americans uh, engaged on. Um, it's April 1942. World War II is, at that point, something of a disaster for the United States. Uh, Germany is on the march throughout Europe. Uh, the work, our campaign in Africa is not going well. Uh, the Japanese have spread their perimeter all around the Pacific. They're bombing Australia. They've taken our largest colony in the Philippines. The Bataan Death March is underway in which tens of thousands uh, of Americans are tortured, abused, and killed. And it looks like the United States might just lose this war. And Roosevelt had been railing uh, his generals for months, saying we need to have a counterattack. We need to show... Uh, some sign of uh, a fight, of force, of success. And uh, ultimately, the person who gets to have to do that is a guy named Jimmy Doolittle, who uh, is a stunt pilot uh, from who had rejoined the Army in 1941 as a lieutenant colonel um, and was asked to do the impossible, right? In 1942, it's simply impossible to fly a plane over Japan um, because of Japan's incredible defensive perimeter. It's just technologically not something a bomber could do. But Jimmy Doolittle engineers around the problem. He he applies American you know, no, ingenuity and stick to to figure that they can take off 16 mid, uh, mid-sized army bombers, B-25Bs, off an aircraft carrier. And if they can get close enough to Japan, they can fly a one-way mission over Japan, do a bombing run to show the... The Japanese, they're not as invulnerable as they believe, uh, and ultimately, hopefully, get to safety by landing in China. And he pulls it off. That's the most, it's the most amazing moment um, of the first, in the, in the first few moments of the, of the war, the first few months, in the first few months of the war, um, the idea that America is capable of striking back, right, it's, it's a, it is so galvanizing. On yeah, American- that did so much for American morale, and it did a lot to inform the Japanese that they had something to worry about. Absolutely. Right. It, it shows that the United States is not only in it to win this war because it's the right thing to do, but it's something that the Americans can do. Right. We can win this war. Um, it completely screws up the Japanese sense of invulnerability. Uh, they end up taking some disastrous strategic decisions, not the least of which was hastening the Battle of Midway, which becomes, you know, it's it's Waterloo, so to speak. Par- pardon the mixing of war metaphors there. But it also redeploys its air uh, air power around the Pacific back to the mainland to prevent further attacks. Uh, it engages in just an utterly brutal operation against China that's completely strategically useless. Um, they attempt to basically prevent further efforts to land in China. And so they destroy every airfield in China, completely destabilizes what had been relatively successful pacification operations uh, up to that point in 1942. Um, and Japan never has any meaningful control over China after that. So, um, what kind of damage did the Tokyo bombing do? Pretty light damage. Um, you know, the uh, the planes were all equipped with demolition bombs um, and then a, an incendiary cluster. The demolition bombs were actually pretty accurate. Um, the uh, Japanese Self Defense Forces, some scholars associated with it, uh, did a report about 20 years ago analyzing uh, the dual raid. And the demolition bombing was actually pretty successful in targeting uh, things like the Mitsubishi factory, things um, like other factories, some oil oil refineries. Um, the incendiary bombing was a little less accurate, but that's, I think, just because incendiary bombs just are not accurate. Um, and so ended up spreading fire in um, a lot of uh, residential areas. But the bombing itself was fairly accurate, but that's not to say it was significant. It can be praised, though, right? Because these planes had to fly super low in order to be in order to avoid uh, anti-aircraft fire. Instead of being able to drop bombs uh, from anywhere between ten and twenty thousand feet, they had to drop them from what fifteen hundred. 
Uh, five hundred. Five hundred. Uh, yeah. So sorry, they they did their approach at five hundred feet, and then um, then to drop went up to fifteen hundred feet. So right, yeah. it's like driving. Uh, you know, at one point in the book, I describe it like driving through a town you've never been in at at two hundred miles an hour. Yeah, uh, trying to recognize the street names cause, and trying to figure out where you're going. Because these guys were given maps that would take it from a surveillance plane. Uh, yeah, the training yeah. the yeah. training was yeah. good, and to do as, uh, the job that they did, I think took incredible uh, nerve and steadiness. On their Absolutely. Um, and practice and skill, because that, that's sort of one of the things that there's this, you know, certainly in the first half of the 20th century, you know, there was the Howard Hughes impression of what a what a pilot was. Right. These guys who kind of just rode planes like horses. Um, but Jimmy Doolittle was unique, almost uniquely capable of doing something like the Doolittle raid because he had a Ph.D. from MIT. He would do these things that seemed completely insane right he, he one one of his most famous exploits was a um a blind flying exercise where he took off from an airfield in long island flew 14 miles overhead and landed without ever being able to see a foot in front of him um yeah well, and did he paint him. did he paint the windshield or was it uh, he, he had these like panels yeah. that he put over the windshield um and and it was you know to some extent it seemed crazy but he his whole point was when you're up in an airplane Everything is different, right? You're flying blind anyway. You need to rely on instruments. You need to rely on mathematics and precision uh, because if you're relying on your gut, you're going to get spun around and turned upside down super fast. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, he was just that kind of guy. He's an incredible American. Um, he really should have – he should be much more of a household name today than I, than I think he is. I remember the first time up in a small plane with my sister as pilot. And I was kind of shocked. I said, "Sis, we can't we can't look through the window and see the runway. <laughs> what, what's going on here? How are you going to manage this thing?" So, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a weird feeling. And back then, I mean, they were only just a few decades away from really the invention of the plane. So, yeah, yeah, yeah it's a, it's it's the iPhone of the era, right? It's it's this completely new invention that that is completely changing society. Um, and people are still learning how it works. Um, one of one of Doolittle's other exploits, which I again I think is, I mean, in reflecting back on its impact at the time, it, it's difficult to understate how significant it was. Is he was the first American to ever fly across the country in 24 hours. Now that today seems, you know, oh my God, a 24-hour flight across the country seems horrible, right? How many connections would you have to do to to have something like that happen? Uh, you know, to get from Boston to Los Angeles. Um, but the, but you know this is this is a time when you know trains only went seventy miles an hour. Um, yeah. You know he really did in in a way knit together that that single feet kind of knitted together the United States as one place. Right. All of a sudden, Los Angeles was as close to Boston as Boston was to New Haven, Connecticut. Um, and and that's a real just change in you know our sense of ourselves actually as a country. Right? Jim, Jimmy now, Doolittle and the te- and the Telegraph. That's right, Jimmy Doolittle and the Telegraph. That's right. Those those two inventions um, or two you know those two two things really did just knit this country together as a as one place. Um, and so it's just you know I, I as you could probably tell I'm just fascinated by Jimmy Doolittle. I think he's just this great, extraordinary human being who, um, as I said, I'm surprised is not more of a household name. He sure gave us a lot of hope in 1942. That was a scary time. And I think a lot of youngsters studying history today really don't quite understand that the United States did not know how a war on two fronts was going to turn out. And it was not looking good in 42. No. And you explained that very well earlier. So the uh, 16 planes... How many were able to get out successfully, and how many were captured? So not a single plane was shot down. Uh, Japan is taken completely by surprise. Uh, Jimmy Doolittle's uh, strategy of doing low-level bombing to avoid anti-aircraft fire works, and then some. The anti-aircraft fire ends up doing more damage to Tokyo than to any of the planes. All the planes make it make it out of Japanese airspace, um, but only one lands on its wheels. Uh, that one is up lands. Ed York basically has to is running very low on fuel and turns north and lands in Russia, um, which is very controversial politically at the time for reasons I'm happy to explain. But all the rest of the planes are hunting around for this homing beacon that Chiang Kai-shek, the the leader of the um, the or sort of the the force that's uni- allied with the United States and China, is supposedly set up, but none of them can find it actually because it's not there. Um, and so what ends up happening is the other 15 planes all crash. Um, either the crews jump out and let the planes crash into the mountains. Uh, and it, but at least in two cases, they actually 
ride the plane all the way down and crash into the East China Sea. What's miraculous, though, is all but two of the crews, so I guess that's, what, 13 of the, of the 15 who crash land into China, make it to safety within, a, within less than a month. Uh, they make it to free China. And so, you know, when Jimmy Doolittle comes home a month after the Doolittle raid, when all the secrecy, right, there's all the secrecy about, you know, what was the Doolittle raid, who pulled it off, uh, FDR tells his press secretary, say the planes must have left from Shangri-La um, to misdirect the Japanese. So when Doolittle comes back and it's revealed that he was the one who did it and that nearly all the crews uh, survived, all the men survived, it's just this just incredible moment, right? The fireworks are going off. It's this, this you know, the United States can finally take some comfort in that through kind of, again, American grit and ingenuity, we were able to do what everyone at the time thought was impossible uh, to take the fight directly to Japan. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsors. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And now, back to our show. But two of the crews, as, as you probably guessed, don't make it out. Um, eight, uh, two, two of the men ultimately die uh, in one of those plane crashes off the East China Sea that I talked about. Um, but then the eight crew members, five from one plane, three from the, from the one that crashes into the sea, uh, get captured by the Japanese in China. Um, and that's really the jumping off point for my book, is this, you know, what, what happens to those who um, can't make it out safely. And d- describe what happened to those prisoners and how long they were incarcerated, how that path went for them. Uh, it did not go well. Um, you know, you they, they were all rounded up, taken prisoner, uh, put into the custody of the Japanese Kempei Tai, which is this um, uh, kind of secret police clandestine service that the Japanese army is running. All of them are tortured uh, incredibly brutally. Waterboarding is part of that, uh, but also things like stress positions, being hung by the hands, being subjected to prolonged sleep deprivation, solitary confinement. One of the, uh, the men who I write about, Chase Nielsen, um, they actually take these thin sticks that Nielsen describes as looking like thin pencils and they pin his hand to a table and then jam the sticks between, in, into the webbing of his fingers, down into the finger nerves. And, and he described that as probably one of the worst sensations he had ever felt in his entire life. It just got right down into the nerves, right? These are, these are sadists who had practiced the art of torture um, and were more than willing to use it. Um, yeah, it seems so. that they enjoyed, they enjoyed their role because the information that these downed pilots could have given them was limited. All they knew was that they were sent on a mission to bomb Tokyo. They bombed Tokyo. They crash-landed in China, period. That's all they knew. Yeah. So for years, they're being held and tortured in Japanese holding cells. Yeah. Yeah, they're being tortured in Japanese custody. And, um, And in fact, they didn't even know... They didn't even know the mission was to attack Japan until they were two days out at sea. Um, they all rendezvoused. They, they did a lot of training where, you know, they, they clearly were going to be doing something unique because they had to figure out how to get a plane up uh, in 500 feet. Um, but they rendezvoused off, deck. In, uh, off the deck. Right. But well, they don't say off the deck. They just say 500 feet. Off a deck so pitching in high seas. That's right. And so they rendezvous in Alameda, California, get on, uh, um, see their planes loaded onto an aircraft carrier, and then it's only two days uh, when they're out at sea that uh, the captain of the ship breaks in and says, this task force is bound for Tokyo. And, and that's the first time they actually find out what their mission is. Um, so it's a really incredible, you know, the, the incredible act of bravery and, and duty, you know, to go into something that's, you know, is dangerous. That's the only thing they're told, that this is going to be a dangerous mission. Um, but to commit to something that, you know, I think in their honest moments, they probably understood might be, you know, the last thing they ever do. Um, you know, it's an ex- incredibly dangerous thing they did. 
Explain what function Major Ray Nichols had, an Operation Magpie. Yeah, uh, so Ray Nichols uh, is, a, is a, an interesting character all by himself. He's the head of an Office of Strategic Services commando team uh, that had been fighting the Japanese in the Burmese jungle throughout much of 1944, 1945, but then gets tasked uh, a few days after the bombs drop on Hiroshima and Nagasaki that the OSS's new mission is going to be rescuing American prisoners of war all around China. And Nichols is put in charge of a team that's tasked with getting a prisoner of war camp, liberating a prisoner of war camp uh, on the outskirts of Beijing called Feng Tai. And he and his team fly over, drop down uh, in the early evening. You know, our beginning, this is on uh, two days after the the emperor has surrendered and they think, okay, okay, we're, we're in a truce. We're in a truce, but sure enough, some pops start going off from the, yeah, somebody coach. hadn't made the phone call. Someone hadn't gotten the memo. That's right. Um, and, uh, so they take some fire. A Japanese Lieutenant kind of rushes out, uh, basically rescues them <laughs> from this field and explains, you know, had you guys dropped a couple hours later, you would have definitely been killed because the enlisted don't know, right? They didn't get the memo. The enlisted don't know that um, the war is over. Uh, and it's only the officers who've been told. But through his negotiating skills with the, the warden of the Feng Tai prison, he ultimately liberates 500 Americans uh, and, and Europeans who are being held as prisoners of war there. They have this massive victory party in a hotel that, that Nichols repurposes as their barrack. Uh, that was in Beijing. Yeah, the yep. Grand Hotel des Wagon Lit. Uh, which was an old geisha house that they repurposed into their uh, bachelor's officer's quarters for, for liberated prisoners of war. Um, but while this victory party is going on, Nichols hears a rumor that the Doolittle Raiders were being held at Feng, Feng Tai. And, and no one believes that, right? Because the Doolittle Raiders, by this point, are all believed to have been killed, right? The ones, the eight who are captured were all believed to be killed back in 1943. But he nevertheless gets in the face of the prison warden at Feng Tai and the, and Within a few hours, the, the warden brings out some three very emaciated Americans who had been just freshly shaved and buzz cutted. Uh, and Nichols goes up to one, a, a sort of soft spoken Utah by the name of Chase Nielsen, and asks him who he is. And he says, I'm Chase Nielsen. I was a Doolittle Raider. And Nichols kind of gets this wry smile and says, Look out for this guy. He's off his rocker. Yeah. Because uh, it's, you know, it's Lazarus back from the dead. Yep. Unbelievable. And then, then yeah. he gets the rest of the story, finds out that there's one guy still barely alive. I think he was on his last breath when Nichols got there, right? Yeah, George Barr. Um, you know, I mean, was a, an orphan from Brooklyn who had taken on the Doodle Raid, actually, you know, had his birthday on the on the USS Hornet before the mission and, you know, gets is near death. Um, one of the others, one of the other Doodle Raiders who was captured, um, a guy named Frank, um, a guy named Robert Mader uh, from Ohio. Um, he had already died of starvation. Uh, three, three of the dual raiders are executed in October of 1942. And that's, that's what everyone believes actually happens to all the dual raiders. But um, the five who are not executed are held in secret prisons, essentially, uh, subject to what the Japanese called special treatment. And one of them you know, dies of malnutrition in, in the December of 1943. Uh, George Barr is on the verge, literally on the verge of dying in August of 1945. And but for the grace of God and Ray Nichols um, would have uh, probably within a few weeks, but is ultimately rescued and taken into a hospital in Beijing. Who was Ham Young? So Ham Young is, again, another certainly not someone who's a household name. Um, he was, you know, one of the the leading lights of the military legal profession in the 1940s. Um, he was the founder of the Judge Advocate General School, uh, which ultimately uh, establishes itself in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He sort of sets out, you know, he, he's a serious guy. He sets out, he, he's written books on constitutional law. He's a career military lawyer. Um, at a time when military law is only kind of law, right? It's the old joke used to be that military law is to law what military music is to music. Um, and Am Young really just sets out to, to change all that, uh, to, to make the legal profession um, a much more serious enterprise within the military, to make law a serious enterprise in the military. And he happens to be stationed as the, the top lawyer in China for General Wedemeyer uh, at the end of the war. And the Doolittle Raiders, after they're rescued by Ray Nichols, the three Doolittle Raiders who are healthy enough to travel, uh, get brought to Ham Young's headquarters in Chongqing, China. And Ham Young sits them down and basically says, what happened? 
And he asks because at that very time, the United States is has decided as a matter of policy to conduct war crimes trials of the captured uh, Nazi and, and Japanese war criminals, which is itself kind of a radical innovation that comes from the end of the World War. That's I mean, it was not uncommon uh, throughout history to just execute your enemies. Um, Round them up and a, kill them. Forget the trial. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, don't bother with the trial. Um, and, and that wasn't even kind of a hypothetical uh, at the Tehran conference where Roosevelt, uh, Churchill and Stalin meet for the first time. Churchill describes Stalin as having proposed over dinner. Why don't we just make a list of the top 50,000 Nazis and execute them? Uh, and Roosevelt is reported to have sort of jokingly replied, well, what about 49,000? Wouldn't that be sufficient <laughs> as a matter of humanity? So he, ends um, up, so he ends up taking 1,500 of their top scientists and splits them with Russia. Well, that, and, that, and, that's true, too. And, and, bring, um, and brings them over to, uh, to an, uh, one of our Air Force bases in Ohio, where, yeah. where a lot of secret <laughs> testing is done. Right. Yeah, well, that's certainly true. Um, you know, I, I don't, don't I'm not going to give you a rosy colored picture of uh, either World War Two or the post-war period. Um, but the idea that anyone would I've be still got it. I've still got it in for Hirohito. And I'm going to talk to you about that in a minute. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We can definitely talk about if, that. Do you have any uh, extra bumper stickers that say hang Hirohito? I, mean, I might be a little <laughs> late, but. Yeah, it might be a little late. Uh, yeah. You'd have to hang uh, his dead body. Although the British used to do that. They used to try people posthumously for treason and then and then hang their corpses after having dug them up. That's creative. Um, yeah. But actually, speaking of the British, you know, Winston Churchill in his memoirs kind of reports, uh, you, know, re you know, describes recoiling in horror that anything such, anything as barbarous as killing 50,000 men without trial would ever be done. Um, but some secret documents, some secret diaries had uh, were actually only released in the past couple of years. So that's exactly what he wanted to do um, as late <laughs> as 1945. Yeah. 50,000, you know, the number was probably more in the hundreds uh, than in the thousands. Um, but he was actually opposed to war crimes trials. He thought we should just essentially create hit lists of uh, of Nazis and then execute them on site. But but FDR was, you know, I mean, he pushed for it. This was this was really an American policy. Uh, to not only have trials, but, you know, really fair trials. Stalin was comfortable with trials. He had had a lot of, let's quote unquote, trials of his own <laughs> up to that point. Um, but the idea that you'd have fair trials for your enemies was really just, a, you know, a remarkable innovation that's pretty underappreciated. Um, so Ham Young was appointed to set up a, crime off, a war crime office in the China theater. Is that pretty much what his uh, purview was? That's right. He sets up the war crimes office in the China theater and uh, sets up, uh, you know, plans to conduct war crimes trials of the Japanese. And so when the Doolittle Raiders come in, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to see that this is going to be potentially the most important and uh, significant and publicized war crimes trial of the entire post-war period. Um, here can we find the Japanese who are responsible for the, the torture and the murder of the Doolittle Raiders. So I, what were the numbers on that? Now, that was, that was set up with an American judge. There were also other trials which were set up with different judges in different areas. One was in Australia. They had an ongoing, I think, trial there in Australia under, under a different judge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had lots. Of, so so every, all the allied powers, to one degree or another, conducts war crimes trials the, um, in yeah. different places, too. So the, um, the Dutch, for example, conducted a number yes. of war crimes trials in Indonesia. Uh, the Australians conduct them um, in both in Australia, but also in the um, sort of um, South Pacific islands like Ambon. There are a number of, uh, of trials conducted so there. What surprised me was that, that uh, those other trials managed to find 5,000 Japanese military guilty. And of those 5,000, I believe they hung 900. But wow. the American-led trial, if I have this right, only found a couple dozen guilty and, no, hung, that, and hung, that, hung nine? Uh, that, no, that can't be right. Um, the, the, the United States conducted trials all throughout the Asia-Pacific theater. Um, the Navy conducted them, Army did most of them um, in China, around Hong Kong, around Shanghai. Uh, a number were conducted in Japan. Um, there were, the death sentences certainly would have, so, so the number of men tried was definitely well within the hundreds um, across all these trials. I don't know that we got into the thousands. The, the Australians had a tendency to conduct mass trials where like 100 people would be tri on, tried, on trial at the same time. 
Um, the, United, the Americans resisted that and sort of, and typically only tried about, you know, at most a few dozen at a time. At, um, at one point in your story, yeah. it, it reads, no one, re- no one reasonably expected Hirohito to be shipped off to Shanghai for trial. And I made yeah. a note of that, and I wrote in capital letters, why? How, how, did, he, <laughs> how did he differ from Hitler? And, sure, and then sure. I listed six yeah. things just off the top of my mind, which should have, uh, the first of which should have put him on a rope. Yeah, so, you know, the, the trial, or lack thereof, of Hirohito is probably one of the most controversial decisions that MacArthur makes um, at when he's acting as the supreme commander in, in, in post-war Japan. Um, I think when I wrote that passage, it was primarily because um, in addition to the army trials, like the one I, well, I read about in Shanghai, there were the international war crimes trials. So like Nuremberg in, in Germany, um, there was a counterpart to that in Tokyo called the Tokyo Tribunal, where the United States, Australia, Germany, or Australia, France, uh, the United Kingdom, India, China, uh, and one or two other countries who I'm, whose names are slipping my mind just right away, uh, Holland, all sort of jointly prosecuted the top, top, what were called the Class A war criminals mm-hmm. uh, in Japan. Uh, and that's where, for example, Hideki Tojo is both tried Tojo. and then executed. Um, Yamashita, most, Yamashita got his, Tojo got his. Tojo got it. Well, Yamashita, so Yamashita is tried in one of the individual army ones, like the one I read about. That was a pure American court that was conducted uh, in the Philippines. General Hama who's responsible for the Bataan Death March. He was tried in the Philippines and executed there. And with Yamashita's name, uh, that will segue us to what difficulties did the prosecution face? And please explain uh, the roles and personalities of Dwyer and Hendren, which made a great part of the story. Oh, great. Thank you. Um, Yeah, so Dwyer, Robert Dwyer is a fascinating figure. He's this uh, lawyer, the scion of of a popular politician in Rochester, New York, goes to Harvard Law School, has a very bright future ahead of him, runs for office on the Republican ticket in 1934, and loses because FDR is just trouncing everybody, right? This is, this is the, the democratic wave of the New Deal. And so kind of embitteredly leaves politics, but then becomes a fairly prominent lawyer in Rochester. He's approaching 40 when he gets drafted into the army in World War, I, in World War II and does some very boring jobs uh, as a weatherman before he gets himself into Ham Young's JAG school in, 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 uh, in, in Michigan. Takes the time, uh, takes the chance to take a deployment to China, um, is the junior legal officer for the 14th Army, the Flying Tigers. And on one, uh, on one particular day in October, uh, someone hands him a file, a fairly thin file, but a file nevertheless saying, can you put together the case against the Japanese responsible for murdering and torturing the Doolittle Raiders. Big job. A lot of digging. <laughs> no, no, a lot of digging. No small job. Yeah, that's right. Because no one really knows who is responsible, right? There's yep. this kind of, that, that's the real big problem he in particular ends up struggling with. On the one hand, you can say, well, sure, Hirohito, sure, Tojo, sure, you know, the, you know, but, but those people are already sort of slated polit- for political reasons to be tried in Tokyo. Yeah, they've already okay. got files on those guys. Yeah, but they, they, they did a lot of different stuff. Um, you know, the Doolittle, was only ra- Doolittle Raider was only one of the potential crimes they could have been charged with. But also, you know, I mean, it, it, it's ultimately a problem where the responsibility is extremely widely shared, right? It goes all the way high up like that, but it also spreads to every guard who handled the Doolittle Raiders, the prison warden uh, who, who detained them both in, you know, in Shanghai and then later in Nanking and then later in Beijing. He found some uh, key witnesses among the, the friendlier guards, right? He did. Yeah, it was a, it, he, he basically is struggling, you know, to figure out who is most responsible for what happened. And, you know, ultimately puts together this this picture of what was going on in 1942 in Shanghai and hits upon it almost in this flash of, you know, pure inspiration and genius that the people who are the most responsible are the lawyers, <laughs> which as a lawyer, I sort of, you know, I, I set up straight pretty yeah, fast. That sounds right. That's right. Um and he, yeah, because one of the things that the Japanese don't just execute the Doolittle Raiders. This was a fascinating discovery to me, um, you know, because you just, why, why didn't they just behead them, right? That's something that the Japanese certainly had done before and certainly did subsequently. But instead for, you know, really, frankly, interesting political reasons um, that I go into a little bit in the book, the Japanese pass an ex post facto law to put the Doolittle Raiders in front of a show trial, uh, use quote-unquote confessions um, that 
had been basically tortured out of the Doolittle Raiders at this show trial and then sentenced them all to death. And the reason only three are executed is because uh, the emperor decides as a matter of, of grace that he will only execute three, that the rest will have their sentences commuted to this. You mean that trial. came down from the emperor? I thought he wasn't involved. That's right. That's right. It came personally down from the emperor. It was a compromise reached by Tojo and uh, the head of the Japanese uh, army, a guy named Hajime Sugiyama, who kills himself after after surrender and disgrace. And so this this show trial that happens that you know both launders this evidence derived from torture, but also is used essentially as the paperwork to murder the Doolittle Raiders. Uh, Dwyer sets upon prosecuting the Japanese lawyers and judges who conducted this show trial. And he decides that of all the people who, who can be held responsible, they're the most responsible. And so that's ultimately how he builds the trial against against uh, the Japanese most responsible Smart. for the torture and murder of the Doolittle Raiders. Yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant move, right? It's a, a totally innovative thing to do. And how about Hendren? Is, am I pronouncing that right, Hendren? Yeah, John Hendren. Um, John Hendren is, uh, you know, by every everyone I, I talk to about him, uh, every description I read about him, he's a you know Democrat, New Deal Democrat politician from uh, Missouri. Uh, the most good-looking man anyone had ever met. <laughs> um, he was, you know, incredibly poised and reasonable. Not the brightest bulb in the box, but he didn't need to be because he was, you know, so charming. Um, and he uh, essentially works together with Dwyer to build the case and is, because of his much higher rank and also his, his poise and his stature, um, becomes the uh, chief prosecutor of the Japanese lawyers and judges and the prison warden as well gets prosecuted. Yeah, and he, this was like, <laughs> Hendren and Dwyer are kind of like the odd couple. They know? really are. That's yeah. exactly what I thought of as I was writing him. Because, you know, Dwyer is this kind of bullheaded Irish, I'm Irish too, I have some Irish in me, so I can I feel comfortable saying it. You know, this sort of bullheaded Irish, bit of a slob, yeah. um, hot temper, uh, drinks a bit too hard. Uh, John Hendren is this, you know, perfect Felix Unger character. <laughs> Impeccable dress. Yes. yes. You got to be um, as an attorney. So, <laughs> Well, Dwyer is not implacable. That's sort of the funny thing. Every, everything I read about him, uh, even including some interviews with people who kind of knew or knew of him uh, or, or people that had written about this period and, and reflected on Dwyer's life, um, he, was, he was anything but implacable. You could turn his face red in, in five seconds if you, if you got him upset. What did Dwyer learn when he traveled to the Philippines for Yamashita's trial? So, yeah, so he's struggling to figure out how to hold people responsible. And he goes to watch the Yamashita trial. Yamashita is, you know, one of the more compelling Japanese generals, um, just in terms of his military brilliance. Yeah, we did an episode on Yamashita's gold, which uh, he hit. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's, a, that's a great story. It's quite a people legend. Still look for it. Yeah, people are still looking for it. Amel DeMarcos, I believe, is the one who ended up with the, with the gold. Oh, really? Oh, there, she, had, there... she had a fortune. How do you think she could afford all those shoes? She, I, I, I would be very, I would be very happy if, if that was true. I, I hope that's true. I don't know that's true, but I hope it's true. Uh, that the source of her fortune, her shoe fortune, uh, was Yamashita's gold. Um, but yeah, Yamashita, you know, is a really compelling, you know, really just brilliant tactical commander. Um, takes over Malaya Peninsula and, and Singapore from the British at the very beginning of the war. You know, outnumbered ten to one. Um, and just through real, again, tactical brilliance, is able to, to, to pull off this coup early in the war. He, he's given the thankless assignment of trying to defend the, the Philippines a week before uh, MacArthur does his famous return. Um, and he ultimately pulls his men back. They, they go into the mountains around Manila. Uh, but about 20,000 Japanese soldiers, mostly Japanese sailors, stay behind and fight what is unquestionably one of the most brutal, sadistic battles of the entire Second World War, um, certainly up there with things like Stalingrad. It's urban fighting of the most just ruthless kind, um, and the atrocities were rampant. Tens of thousands of Filipinos uh, were murdered uh, and raped and tortured in some of the worst ways you can imagine. Yeah, they're still not happy with the Japanese today, and there's no reason for them to be. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, Children killed in their mother's arms, patients killed in hospitals, um, you know, like uh, people killed in churches. It, it's just one of the most horrific, uh, horrific moments of the Second World War. And it only ends, the Battle of Manila only ends because all the Japanese are dead. Um, and 
at the end of the war, MacArthur says, we have to find who's responsible for this. And even though Yamashita had uh, retreated back to the mountains, um, they ultimately devise a, a legal doctrine called command responsibility um, that holds Yamashita responsible for it, uh, for, for the Battle of Manila, even though he didn't direct it. The Supreme Court ultimately upholds this in 1946 over some dissents. Um, there's a lot of anxiety over Yamashita's prosecution, primarily because MacArthur you know, made no secret of how politicized this prosecution was. Um, it, it's no accident that Yamashita is found guilty and sentenced to death on December 7th, 1945. And I think, and I would say incredibly unfortunately, um, that has led Yamashita to, you know, live in history in a much gauzier light uh, than he should. Because if you go back to Yamashita's career, even though the Battle of Manila, you know, it is not directly layable at his feet, right? He did retreat. He tried to pull his men out. And the men who stayed behind were disobeying orders, sure. But, you know, that famous campaign where he routed the British in Singapore, um, you know, he committed gross atrocities against patients in hospitals. He murdered about six to 7,000 Chinese men and boys in Singapore, mm -hmm. uh, yep. taking power. He was actually one of the leading fascist generals in the Japanese army. He had initiated, and or not initiated, but certainly sponsored a coup in 1936 that ends up completely destabilizing Japan's democratic government and leads it down this path so that it becomes the sort of imperial you know, terror state that it does in the early 1940s. Um, it's a real, you know, I mean, it, it's sort of an interesting lesson that when you, you, you know, that MacArthur framed a guilty man <laughs> of the wrong crime. And the sad consequence of that is that we don't remember Yamashita as the villain he genuinely was, um, that his, that his complexion in history has, has softened. Yeah, no, um, he was totally responsible for the butchery that took place in the Philippines upon the American invasion and prior to the American invasion, during the years that they occupied, the, during the four, three and a half years that they occupied the Philippines. Uh, he was the man. What There's a Latin expression for, I didn't do it or I'm not responsible for it. I forget what that is. Uh, Latin expression. I, I, my, you should uh, know that. You know, you're an attorney. You should, should be know, popping this, a, yeah, this as stuff. As an attorney, as a Jesuit educated young man, I should, I should definitely have pretty much more <laughs> up on my Latin. Um, but no low contende but, or something like that. Yeah, no low contende. Yeah, that, that's not a bad one. He, he, he can. He has no defense essentially. Um, well, you, well, we've set up the we've set up the, pro, the we set up the prosecution with with Dwyer, and Hendren. Let's set up the defense. So the defense attorney, um, the lead defense attorney in the Doolittle case um, was almost just as fascinating to write about as Dwyer was um, and was sympathetic for many different reasons, but almost equally so. I, I actually, I mean, for a, for a war story that's about a trial, um, I actually found the story utterly heartwarming and inspiring for a lot of reasons I'll get to. Um, but Bodine, Ed Bodine is a, a pilot. He is a liaison combat pilot, gets the Silver Star uh, for action against Japan in China in, in 1945. Um, he's, you know, redeployed to Shanghai in the late 1945 period when, you know, Americans are being sent home by the, by the hundred, if not thousand, each week. Um, you know, it's, the, it's the great redeployment. There's no reason for him to stay in Shanghai anymore, right? They don't need any more combat pilots. Um, but he d has fallen desperately in love. Uh, with a beautiful Russian woman uh, who is the concierge at the Broadway Mansions, which is the, the bachelor's officer's quarters that the army takes up in Shanghai. Um, and so he needs a reason to stay, uh, and he needs a good reason to stay. From Russia and with so, love. From Russia with love, that's exactly right. And he uh, ultimately gets asked, does he want to be the defense lawyer for the Japanese in the Doolittle trial? And, you know, I think his instinctive answer is no. No one wants this job. <laughs> Oh, are you kidding? Uh, are you kidding? Right. Um, but it gives him a reason to stay. And he had done a little bit of night school. He kind of probably failed out of out of law school. Um, but he had done a little night school, so he knew a little something. Um, and uh, he takes the job reluctantly, kind of assuming, I think, initially, that his job is to just stand there, right? Be, be a good-looking potted plant for these guys who are guilty of sin so that they can be executed and it can look as you know reasonable as possible for the papers. Um, 
But what's really just, I, I found his story actually really inspiring because he, he decides ultimately that he can't do that, right? That he has to actually give them the defense he would want to be given if he darn felt sense of justice always gets that in the way. Darn, right, that darn golden rule. Everyone always gets bitten by that, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, so he just commits to putting on the best defense that he can, uh, even though he's grossly unqualified to be doing what he's doing. Um, and really, I think, can be credited in some ways with ensuring that the trial of, you know, what, what becomes really the trial of a trial, the trial of the Doolittle Raiders trial, mm-hmm. um, is itself a fair trial, right? It's everything that the Japanese trial of the Doolittle Raiders was not. Um, and uh, it's just, it, I kind of just found the the whole story, the whole interaction between Dwyer and Bodine, who, who in real, you know, who, who outside the courtroom were actually bosom buddies, uh, good drinking buddies. And Dwyer's actually in love with Bodine's girlfriend as well. Um, <laughs> oh, great. Right. <laughs> a lot of dynamics going on um but you know that these two guys have really just clear passionate visions of what's right and wrong and they're both right you can make it you know a good argument for both of them being right and they just in a good faith way fight it out in a courtroom right they 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 care about the truth they care about justice they care about you know all the things that we used to call the american way uh the american way of life um and it, I don't know. So that for that reason, um, I actually found it to be this really inspiring study of heroism, heroism of all sorts of different kinds and people really, you know, fighting for what they believe in, fighting for what's good and true and just and trying to make the world a better place as a result. Yeah, you give us all a glimpse of the best of human nature. And the worst. <laughs> There's plenty of the worst in there. too. Yeah. John Grisham gave you a great review. Uh, Last Mission to Tokyo is a thoroughly compelling true story of legal intrigue in the most unexpected of settings. Impeccably researched and beautifully written, it captures the reader with the first sentence and never lets go. Thank you. Yeah, that was a that was really flattering uh, that he said that. I, I John Grisham was probably the first author of real books that I ever read when I was a uh, you know a, a young man. So uh, it was really it was really heartwarming to to see that he liked the book. Well, he's a great writer. Should we tell our listeners how this trial ended up? So, the uh, without without getting into spoilers, I know that's always tricky when talking about history. Uh, the verdict surprised everybody. Um, I think that's that's fair to say. Although, although I will say this, uh, Tojo, this is not a spoiler. Tojo is hung. Uh, Tojo is hung in part uh, for his role in the uh, torture and murder of the Doolittle Raiders. That's one of the charges against him on which he is found guilty at the Tokyo Tribunal many, many years later. And so at least one man is hung for, as, uh, for, for what had been done to the Doolittle Raiders. But the, the, verdict, the, the verdict of the trial of the trial, uh, which is the centerpiece of this book, it, it surprised everybody. I'll say that. Yeah, the, I think we, what you could do without giving away too much is tell us maybe three big points that the defense worked on. Sure. So I think, I mean, the, the defense really ends up trying to, prove, I mean, to the extent the prosecution is putting a trial on trial, one of the strategies the defense has to do or, or seeks upon, seizes upon is to try and justify the trial, um, to defend the trial, right? So we're using the word trial a lot here. But they do that in two ways. One is they, they try and show that, you know, particularly the, the general who's being held responsible, a guy named Shigeru Sawada, not only had was not directly involved in the show trial, um, but also was you know had had actually taken steps to try and stop the death sentences from being imposed, um, and that was a huge revelation. They also tried to show that the Japanese, and th- and this was really sort of one of the more you know jarring but you know amazing parts of the story, is that the Doolittle, they they tried to basically show that the Doolittle Raiders had in fact uh, committed some atrocities against the Japanese to try and muddy that water. And that was third, based on their that was based on their confessions, right? Yeah, based on their confessions, which was forced confessions, um, and and right. yeah, maybe an incendiary bomb missed its target by a few hundred yards. That's right. That's so about as bad as it got, right? Uh, well, they didn't so jump out of their I, planes and torture six-year-olds. No, certainly not. Certainly not. Um, but there were, you know, I mean, but there were. Look, there. This is war, um, and we and we can't be gauzy-eyed about it. And there were. Uh, civilians killed in the Doolittle raid, and the question was, did were the civilians killed in a way that was lawful 
under the law of war? Was it collateral damage, like with the incendiary bombs, or could they show something more deliberate? And that, that's ultimately one of the, the things that, you know, I don't know is proven to anyone's satisfaction. But certainly one of the most contentious points is, was the Doolittle Raid, were the Japanese civilians killed in the Doolittle Raid, uh, killed in a way that violated the law of war? Or was it, you know, more like collateral damage? And that, that ends up being a really contentious point at the trial. Yes. Um, and you asked for three, so I'll, I'll put a teaser out for a third that I hope won't be a spoiler, because I think, to me, it was one of the more, you know, surprising parts of the book, is uh, that Dwyer and, and Hendren, in putting together their investigation and in putting together the men who are responsible for the show trial, uh, they miss somebody, and they miss somebody big. And that ends up being, I think, pretty consequential at the trial, too. Ah, good one. Good one. <laughs> you know, uh, I think what upsets so many people about justice when it's done right is that there's no tit for tat. You, mm. can, you can get a guy who's got a record as long as your arm who's got all kinds of murders and crimes behind him. But the only thing that matters in the final decision is what happened in relation to this crime that's being tried. And it's the same thing in the war crimes trials, you know. You can't, you can't say, well, okay, Japan, without provocation, attacked the United States and for, for a period of four years ignored all international law with regard to captives committed all kinds of atrocities that went far beyond. I'm sorry, they did. They went far beyond the atrocities committed by the Allies uh, in terms of their mm. barbarousness. And yet we're supposed to give them equal justice under the law. That's the hardest part, I think, for a lot of people to accept. Yeah, uh, it, it is. It's incredible. That's why Churchill said we should just shoot them. Um, yep. You know, it's not... It, it, the, the impulse for revenge is as old as time. It's as old as the earliest legal codes. You know, the, the code of Hammurabi, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And I think what marks, I'll use the word, I'll, what marks progress, uh, what marks civilization, is our ability to take that moment at the end of World War II, the United States, and when I say our, to take that moment at the end of World War II to say, you know, we did not just fight this war the way our enemies did, right? We didn't do that. We didn't just fight to win. We didn't fight just for power. We fought for something. We fought for values. And so these, these ideas that we had in the United States, things like the rule of law, right? The thing that gets so, that's so hard to swallow, right, when our desire for revenge is at its hottest. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea that we have to be fair to our enemies. My God, right? That's it's the most controversial part of the New Testament, or at least it's the hardest part to keep up with. Yes. And that we had this moment where we had real, you know, uncontested power over the entire world. We're the only country with the nuclear bomb at that point. And we took that moment not to spike the football, not to, you know, hang, hang the enemy the way, you know, Caesar used to hang uh, the defeated Gauls, like in, in some great giant parade in square. Mm -hmm. Um we said we fought this war for a reason and we're going to stick to it. The world that's going to come after this war is going to be the world that we take for granted in the United States with things like the rule of law, with things like equality and justice and fairness and human rights. Like these are not universal values by any stretch of the imagination You're right. in 1945. They're not um, today. They're barely today. But I can tell you that from 1945 on, um, they have become part of international law in ways that, you know, would have seemed almost comical, right? Dreamy and idealistic and absurd, utopian in the 1930s. But within, you know, a few years of our winning the Second World War, not only do you have trials like Nuremberg, like the one I read about, where, you know, fairness is extended to enemies, not just revenge, um, but you have things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you have things like the Geneva Conventions of 1949, which ban torture, which ban murder, which ban um, outrages upon human dignity, which treat, you know, and give prisoners of war an entitlement to be treated with dignity and respect. None of that is, you know, in egg, is, is even a glint in anyone's eye in 1940. Yet we take this moment in 1945 to really remake the world in our best image. Um, and certainly, you know, we're not perfect, of course. We're, you know, we're a country, we're people. No one's perfect. Well, I think um, we're a few steps above the Taliban. 
but we're like 50 steps above the Taliban and and we're 50 steps above the Germans right of 1940 and that's sort of the and that's one of the lessons again I take you know there's a lot of cynicism these days and there's a lot of cynicism about American history these days and I find that really unfortunate because you know we we can't we can't learn anything we can't you know set positive goals in our own lives if we don't look back to our history for inspiration. Oh, I couldn't and agree with you more. It's one of the reasons I podcast history. I try to point out that we see, we tend to see, especially in today's education, we tend to look at things through today's filter and then try and judge what was done 100 years ago or 200 years ago uh, as it applies to today's filter. And it doesn't, folks. You've got to take yourself back to, to uh, 1672 and to 1865, you just have to take yourself back and look at what was the situation then. Absolutely. And I think it's, and it's not just like, you know, it's not just fair to, to, to our ancestors to, to, you know, give them the respect of their own time, right? To understand them in their own context. It also is, it also helps, it also prevents us from understanding how progress happens, right? Progress comes from a bad place and goes to a better place. And if we look back on our ancestors as all these, you know, oh, well, they don't live up to our standards of today, you know, well, what's the point of doing anything then? Because we're definitely not going to live up to the standards of people 100 years from now, not even close, right? They're going to think all sorts of things we did. I, I don't even know what they are, but I'm sure they're going to be all sorts of things we're doing right now, which are uh, completely unacceptable to people 100 years from now. And I think the only thing that we can do, and, and honestly, what I think if you, an honest reading of history tells us we must do, is to try and just make the world as better, better than the one we got um, when we came into it. And, and that's really what the United States did in the Second World War. It, it's completely, I, you know, I mean, underappreciated. I, I know that sounds strange for something as well-trod as the Second World War, but I think what, how different the world of 1946 was from the world of 1940 um, just it can't be overestimated. And I think it's just foolish. It's naive, it's foolish, it's ignorant to not look at that moment of progress and really just take stock in a way that, that we should be proud as Americans. Well, right? I agree. This is something... I agree with you very much, and I yeah. wish more people would see it that way. I am, I am also tired of the cynicism uh, that I hear. It's very easy to criticize, but you have to have a knowledge of what's going on around the world and what went on in the past and what's going on now in order to appreciate the unique situation the United States is in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a lot of reasons, there's a lot of reasons to be proud. Absolutely. And, and I, and that's why I, you know, that's why I love history too, um, is, you know, it, it gives me lessons. And, and when I'm having difficulty understanding the world I live in today, I always look to history to try and, you know, see it with a with a cooler eye, um, which is something that history often affords us. And and I think anyone who looks back and studies history with any seriousness, um, a understands no one in the past was perfect. Thank God, right? How horrible it would be if we had to live in the world today when our ancestors were saints. Um, like that would <laughs> it would be complete. That's a standard you could never live up to. But but by the same token, it's also you just see. You know, I mean, things today are so so much better. So much better than they were even 50 years ago, let alone 100 years ago, let alone 200 years ago. And it took people to do that. It took people to stand up for, for what was right, for, to, do, to make hard calls, to do things they, they probably didn't want to do. But at the end of the day, you know, did leave us or we allowed us to be born into a world that was, that was far better, far more peaceful, far more just than anything, um, you know, that, that they could have even expected in their own lifetimes. Michelle Paradis, thank you so much for this interview. We appreciate it. We appreciate your excellent book, Last Mission to Tokyo. And I encourage our listeners to pick up a copy. It's a fantastic read, and you're going to be amazed at the outcome of this book. And what we just discussed at the end, I think will become a lot clearer to many of you. Michelle, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. It was great having you with us at 1001 Heroes. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for having me. It's a great show, and I'm so proud to be on. You bet. Thank you.